0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What did an ordinary day in the Inca Empire look like? How did the Incas count using knots and why were stones so sacred to them? Emily Briffitt spoke to Bill Siller to find out everything you wanted to know about the Inca empire. As usual in this series, our questions are drawn from popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted on our social media channels.
1: So hi, Bill. It's lovely to be chatting to you today.
2: Hi. Well, thank you for inviting me.
1: Today, we're going to be answering listener questions and top internet search queries all about the Incas. So to start us off, who were the Incas?
2: So the Inca, I mean, they mean slightly different things. The word means slightly different things for different people. At the top of the tree, if you like, is the leader of the Inca empire, the Sapa Inca, the unique Inca. Under him, there's a family, if you like, of kinship groups of, of other Incas. Beyond that, there is the group of ethnic groups around Cusco, and they consolidated to provide the, the core of what became an expansive empire that eventually took over a large part of South America. So particularly Peru, but going into Bolivia, Chile, Ecuador, um, a little bit of Argentina, just touching Colombia possibly. So a huge expanse of South America that eventually became the Inc Empire, but it was very large, multi ethnic, complex entity. All of that can be referred to as the Inca, if you like, okay? But they incorporated a lot of different environmental areas and different ethnic groups and things. So who were the Inca? They were all of these different scales of entity, but they were basically a small, expansive group that took over a large empire.
1: Should we be calling them the Inca or the Incas?
2: Well, in some ways, the word is it's largely incorporated now into Spanish and English. Inca probably meant lord in the Quechua language, although it's not now clear what its original meaning. To pluralise a Quechua word would be kuna. So Inca kuna would be the lords, but then the Sapa Inca is the unique Inca ruler. So I think for us speaking in English, it's perfectly fair to call the Incas because we're pluralising it in English. But the empire was actually called Tawantinsuyu, the four parts together, which was the Inca conception of their large entity. They didn't refer to themselves as the Inca empire. That's how we refer to it.
1: To give us a bit of further context, what time frame are we looking at here?
2: Well, that too is interesting. So the Inca come after a very long period of development in South America, and there are previous large empires, um, the Wari Empire, but that came to an end around 1000 AD. And there's a sort of intermittent period, it's called by archaeologists, the late intermediate period, when other things are happening. The Inca probably emerge as a really major entity by about 1400. The traditional date that's given is 1438, which is a sort of date that's been constructed by using little bits of history, if you like, from the Spanish chroniclers about the most likely date of succession of Pachacuti Inca, who was particularly associated with the expansion of the empire. But that's, that date's a bit arbitrary. But it's a very short period really, before the Spanish conquest. It's only 130, 140 years of that sort of expansion of empire before the Spanish arrive. So it's a really a not a not a very long period for such a large entity to have been created.
1: How was such a large empire controlled and administered?
2: Okay, well, that's a, a really major question. And I guess part of that is how do they expand? So to start with, they created basically an alliance amongst a range of ethnic groups. So the Inca emerged in Cusco, um, which is the highland area. About Cusco itself is 3,400 metres above sea level. And they consolidated a small number of ethnic groups around there as an alliance. And then they began to expand out. In some cases, they had real you know warfare and battles, and they had an army that they could bring together. And in some cases, they created further alliances with the ethnic groups that they um, incorporated as they expanded out. And that's really crucial because they begin to use the ethnic groups as part of the administration. So the provinces, if you like, of the Inca Empire are partly delimited by different ethnic groups, and in many cases, they left the leadership of those ethnic groups in place. And what they did was they demanded certain obligations from that leader of labour, particularly, uh, including people coming and supporting them in military campaigns, but also um, providing um, labourers to work on fields and produce crops and things. And that was effectively coordinated by the leaders of the ethnic group. So the people that they'd incorporated, their Ethnic leaders would require labor from their subjects, their ethnic subjects, and that was the main sort of administrative route. Now, beyond that, there is the provinces, and there was a taxation system effectively where people were grouped into groups of tens, a hundred, a thousand. The Inca used the decimal system, and it's not quite clear how that sort of decimalization related to these ethnic groups, but there was this sort of administrative control.
1: Did anyone sit at the top of this structure?
2: Well, very much so. So the Sapa Inca is the um, unique leader, if you like, and it was inherited, if you like, within the sort of small Ethnic group of the Inca themselves, but it wasn't necessarily the sort of oldest son, if you like, of the previous Inca. There was definite competition between different potential um, inheritors of that position, and it would be effectively the strongest. Son that would inherit it. That led to dynastic battles. And indeed, one of the things that was happening when the Spanish arrived was a dynastic battle, effectively, between potential sons of Huayna Capac, the final great Inca leader, if you like, and two of his sons, They were, in fact, they were from different mothers, Atahualpa and Huascar, who were effectively having a battle between them over who was going to become leader. And Atahualpa effectively just won that battle as the Spanish were arriving.
1: What powers did they have?
2: Well, huge powers, but those powers were through loyalty, if you like. So a lot of it required the Inca to provide gifts of cloth, I mean, and, and, and sort of inviting people to particular rituals, drink chicha beer and get involved in, in activities that were happening in Cusco and things. But through that, they created these networks of alliance downwards. Having said that, the Tzapa Inca had complete authority and was able to demand and and could indeed, you know, order the killing of people and things like that. So there is this, this sort of combined idea of of reciprocity being used to create loyalty, but at the top of it, this apparent complete control.
1: So I'd like to talk a little bit about trade and economy and that kind of thing. So how extensive were their trade networks?
2: So we've got to be slightly careful about what we mean by trade networks, because there wasn't sort of our commercial world. There wasn't a money system and there weren't definite markets. That's one of the things that the Spanish don't have very good accounts of. What the Inca were doing, though, was to involve a lot of people in redistribution of produce. The most marked example of that is what were called corcas, which were large storage buildings that the Inca brought produce into. That was things like maize and potatoes, but also cloth, armaments, tools for agriculture and things like that that would be stored in these golkas, these storage structures, and then redistributed both to some of the leaders of the ethnic groups, but also to people that were coming and working for the Inca in their fields or as military. And so that redistribution economy was a really important part of how the Inca Economic system worked. But beyond that, there was definitely barter and exchange going on, partly because, in fact, the environment of the Andes leads to really very marked changes in what you can produce, depending on partly the different heights. Of Of the land going up from you know sea level on the on the Pacific coast up to four thousand five hundred meters, you can be growing different crops and the sunshine and and slope and things all affects that that creates this real patchwork of different opportunities to grow things, and you needed to move things beyond it so if you wanted. Your coca leaves, that had to be produced at sort of middle heights, if you like, and moved up to the areas that were growing um, potatoes and maize in between those and things. So you would be moving these things and swapping them between the different areas in order to um, provide what people needed.
1: So this links into a question we've had from AgroBiodiverse on Twitter, who's asked, what would you say is their most important crop?
2: Well, that's an interesting question to ask. Symbolically the most important crop was undoubtedly maize. That became really important in terms of Inca exchange systems, both in terms of providing maize in in its sort of dried and cooked form, but also in producing beer. Um, So maize was ground up, it was allowed to sprout and then ground up, made into a liquid and that was fermented to make a, a fairly weak beer, but it would be drunk in quite large quantities at festivals and used to make offerings. So maize was a hugely important crop in terms of those sort of exchange networks and bringing people together through reciprocity. Probably in terms of the highlands of the crop that was probably eaten most, potatoes were probably more important because they were being produced in very large quantities and they'd been produced for um, thousands of years. Maize in some ways was a, a later development for the the highlands and being produced in large quantities. It was produced in small quantities for a longer period, but it's large quantities. And the Inca developed major terrace systems partly to produce the maize. Potatoes don't require those terrace systems and irrigation systems in quite the same way. Having said that, there were other things. Coca leaves, for instance. One of my colleagues points out that in some ways the Inca used coca leaves partly as a sort of, you know. Not as a drug economy. I think that would be a bit unfair. Um, but they were being used as a as a stimulant that were given to people. Um and coca leaves are grown, they're a bit like tea leaves. You grow them on sort of little bushes and things. Um things like quinoa um were really important, very high um nutrition crop as well. So there was a, a lot of other ones, but I would say potato and maize were the two major crops. And indeed important for us. I mean, if if we think about the role of some of these crops now in society, the domestication of the potatoes in the Andes was a huge contribution to global production. Maize actually originally domesticated in Mexico, but got into the Andes well before the time of the Inca.
1: We've got another question here from AgroBiodiverse on Twitter. He's asked, what was the nature of the Inca's interaction with the Amazon?
2: In a sense, the Inca didn't Conquer the Amazon. They they expanded out. They tended to expand along the mountain range and going down onto the coast, but not particularly down into the full. Jungle, if you like, of the, of the bottom. They occupied what's called the Seca de Selva, the high brow of the of the, of the jungle, which is this sort of cloud forest area, which is partly where things like cocoa um, were being grown, and that's where places like Vilcabamba and indeed Machu Picchu, to some extent, is in that that sort of area. But they didn't occupy the full sort of bottom of the Amazon basin. They were going down and interacting with some of the. Groups down there, the machikenga, the Antes, they 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 were involved in interaction with those groups. Particularly, they were very interested in the bird feathers that were used for um, cloaks and things like that. A lot of those were coming from um, the Amazon, and also some timber, because actually the highlands don't produce very large, long timber. So getting some of the timber that came up from the Amazon, including chonta, which is a sort of palm that was used for um, quite a lot of um, weaving and agricultural tools and things like that. So they were, again, doing sort of exchange relationships with them, but didn't fully conquer the area at at the bottom into the Amazon jungle.
1: Outside of agricultural produce, what kind of material and artisan craft products are they making?
2: Again, the Andes has a very long history of, particularly perhaps, textile production, which the Inca were very famous for. Um, was the quality of their woven textiles? Um, in the highlands, that's being produced with llama and alpaca wool, and sometimes vicuña and even bat fur. They used amazingly from the lowlands. They're producing, of course, cotton, and cotton is produced for cloth. And the Inca inherited, if you like, a very long history of Beautiful textile production. Really amazing, very fine quality, very interesting designs. And, and, and interestingly enough, the Inca become less interested in what we might see as representational stuff in their textiles, and more interested in stuff that to us at least looks more geometric. The accounts of that suggest that it was symbolic of things like field systems and stuff, but to us it looks fairly geometric, some of those designs. They're also producing very impressive pottery, And indeed, one of the things that that plays quite a crucial role is the production of um, large jars for the brewing and and serving of beer that are used in some of these ceremonies. These are not fired in kilns, they're fired in open firings, but they're very high fired with a high polish and they have beautiful designs on them and things. Metalwork, particularly famous as some of their gold and silver work, but also copper alloys, bronzes that are being produced and some beautiful figurines and things like that that are made
1: at IzzyXArch on Instagram has asked, what was their art like? And is there any echo of this left in the modern world?
2: I mentioned that there was an earlier empire of, of the Wari and indeed at the same time Tiwanaku, which is um, based in Bolivia, and these two interacted. They had really complex, interesting iconography as well, which included things like a, a staff person or a staff deity that's, that's depicted with rays coming out of them and holding two staffs and things like that. All of that iconography was dropped at the end of those empires. And the Inca have what seem like fairly, as I say, geometric designs on a lot of their pottery and their textiles. And the stuff that survives that is more image-like is some of the metalwork and occasional bits of carved stone that have things like llamas and pumas depicted on them. And I guess another aspect is the stonework, which again most of that seems to have come to us relatively unadorned. We we see this, you know, very close-fitting, impressive um stonework that is used for architecture. Actually, occasionally some of that was painted. Very little of that painting survives. Even on some of the stonework, it was sometimes painted, and certainly on the Adobe bricks, it was plastered and painted in bright colours. A a bit like we're used to looking at Greek sculptures and thinking of them as beautiful white things. Actually, some of them had interesting colour palettes and and, and, and ranges of decorations. But as far as we can see, most of that was fairly geometric. Now, that's a little bit different on the coast, where one of the groups that the Inca incorporated, in fact, was another empire, the Chimu, who were the inheritors of, of Moche, culture that came before the Chimu, they were producing much more figurative art and uh, really complex images of warriors and iconography of sea creatures and things like that. And some of that definitely continues in the coast and actually begins to get brought back into Cusco before the end of the empire. So you see this starting of something that's becoming a lot more elaborate decoration of figurative material that's just beginning to happen probably towards the end of the Inca Empire. Undoubtedly, the textile traditions are continuing. I mean, one of the problems is what is Inca? The Inca are bringing together a lot of earlier stuff and that continued. The, the, the Spanish arrived, but textile production continued with a lot of really very nice, elaborate designs being produced on, on mainly backtrack. Um, looms, some of the stonework you still see carved stonework being produced and that and there 's been revivals of some of that, so there 's a lot of revival of inca style material culture, um, including things like the potter i 've worked with a lot of pottery communities which carry on much of the pottery technologies that were being used in the Inca period and have revived to some extent some of those Inca designs for modern consumption. Partly by tourists, but also by 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 Peruvians themselves, who, who have a lot of romance and attachment to that that culture that they that they inherited, if you like.
1: One of the notable features of the Inca Empire was their monumental architecture. Can you tell us more about this side of things?
2: Okay, sure. Um, and it is it, it's it's very impressive stuff. One of the things that the Inca do is to create very close fitting stonework with no or very minimal mortar. There is a little bit sometimes behind the stones, but the point where you see them, they are absolutely fitting next to each other and famously you can't get a knife blade between them. And that stonework is all being produced by basically stone technology. So the Inca Empire did not develop iron technology. Um, They actually, uh, they sometimes used meteorite iron, they used um, bronze, but a lot of their Technology is, if you like, a a stone age technology. Now, that begins to make it sound very sort of primitive and and, and unproductive. It was actually a hugely productive and elaborate technology. So they could work very fine stonework to produce these close-fitting stones. Some of them are, um, if you like, sort of rectangular blocks, which actually take even more work. But the stuff that's perhaps most famous are the sort of polygonal blocks where the stone has almost its original organic shape and they've then carved the edges of it so it fits to the next stone and you get this sort of design that looks almost like the sort of honeycomb of stones fitting into each other and it creates something that was undoubtedly an aesthetic that had a a particular resonance for the Inca and the Inca treated the stone itself as um, sacred So uh, wakas were were sometimes um, stones that were seen as living entities. So for them, carving this stone was a hugely significant thing to be doing.
1: I'd like to come back to belief systems in a moment. But we've had a couple of other questions here about the architecture of the time. Louise Waterhouse on Twitter has asked, she's heard a few theories that the Inca and the ancient Egyptians have similar temple styles and the fact that the Incan temples might be similar to the pyramids. Is there any evidence to support this or perhaps alternative theories?
2: Okay, so we don't really see any cultural connection between uh, Egypt and, and, and the Andes. There is, if you like, the Carving of stone, which the um you know the Egyptians were also doing to create structures, and therefore we can see some parallels in terms of aspects of how stone working works for instance we don't see any cultural connection in that and certainly although there are raised structures none of them have the form of of what we would see as you know Egyptian pyramids so I don't think there's any cultural connection but archaeology is full of understanding the differences of culture by looking at where the similarities are and where the differences are so understanding how some of those stone technologies worked is quite important to us
1: I've got another question here from Anna J. Moray on Instagram, who's asked, how, when and why was Machu Picchu built?
2: Well, that's a, a very good question. And and this is about our, our problem with the Inca, if you like, is that actually what we have historically is largely what the Spanish wrote when they arrived and they conquered the Inca Empire. And unless they wrote things down, on the whole, we don't know what happened other than through archaeology. Archaeology doesn't really tell you very easily who as an individual name and why somebody did something. We can see a bit about when it was done, how it was built. So our understanding of why and who did it actually comes from a combination of our understanding of the history and the archaeological evidence. So perhaps I'll step back one from from Machu Picchu to say that one of the things that the Inca did, they had their capital of Cusco, where you see some of this amazing stonework. But beyond that, the Inca set up um, what are sometimes referred to as royal estates. These were very elaborate structures, a little bit like medieval castles, that also had beyond them large land holdings that were used to produce some of the maize that was used for rituals and things like that that went into Cusco um, and other produce. At the centre of them were elaborate building structures uh, where it's likely that the Inca royal family would go and live and conduct certain rituals and things like that. And there are a number of these. So if you go and visit Peru, you would go and visit places like Pizac, or um, Huchicostco, or Ollantaytambo, Chinchero, all of these are associated with Inca rulers. And in some cases, we've got documentary evidence to suggest which ruler was associated with them. Machu Picchu is very likely to have been one of these estates. We don't have very good documentary evidence, but the most likely one is that it was associated with Pachacuti, who was the Inca emperor associated with the first really big expansion. So it's likely that Machu Picchu was one of these elite royal estates built to allow visitors to come to it, but they would be select visitors. They would come and engage in rituals and feasting and a bit of relaxation while they were there. Today, when people go and visit Machu Picchu, one of the ways to do so is what's now called the Inca Trail, which can start from different places, but one of the places it can start from is Ollantaytambo, and it goes via various places of Cusichaca and goes along a range of of Inca sites before it arrives at Machu Picchu. And of course, the Inca had no form of transport other than feet, human feet. They could put things on the back of llamas to carry things for some distance, but that was only 30 or 40 kilos on bags. It wasn't other people. Um, So apart from the Inca Emperor, who was occasionally carried on a platform, basically everybody had to walk wherever they went. So Inca roads... Are very elaborate, but they're designed with steps and they're quite precipitous trails and things. And so the trail to Machu Picchu is one Inca road, uniting various places. But those places are quite elaborate themselves. They've got baths and things. So it seems that it was designed as a pilgrimage route, effectively. And that's so modern people are effectively going on one of these pilgrimage routes to Machu Picchu, which was, I believe, one of these royal estates, an elite residence and ritual centre. So going along that trail, you are retracing the roots of an Inca pilgrimage to a royal ritual centre.
1: Could you tell us, did the Inca have any particular religious beliefs?
2: They had what might be seen as a range of different beliefs. And that's partly perhaps because of the sort of wide range of people they incorporated, Perhaps we most associate the Inca with a, a idea of the sun and sun worship. So Inti is the name of the Quechua name for the, the, the sun. And that certainly was a uniting belief, if you like. And they, they built temples that were associated with the worship of the sun and the moon. But also they had um, an idea of an animating deity, sometimes referred to as a creator, but that may not be quite the right expression, Viracocha. And this was a being that brought other beings into existence and then um, sends them under the ground and they emerge from the ground. So each ethnic group was thought to have emerged from an origin place, a pacarina, quite often associated with a cave or a lake. And when Viracocha gets there, he invites these people to come out of their origin place. Um, So there is this animating entity. But then there is a very strong understanding in the Andes that the, the world itself is animate and you have a reciprocal relationship to it. And so people have a very strong association with the places that they were born, but also with the places that they go and they make um, offerings. Sometimes those are just few coca leaves or pouring a little bit of beer. Sometimes they would be bigger sacrifices of animals and the Inca case, sometimes even of human beings. And these offerings are made to um, locations that are seen as powerful, animate things. So in in um, modern understanding, in fact, the mountains are seen as a lot of the bringers of um, fertility and opportunity, if you like. And so people are making offerings to the mountains, the Apus, um, um, the mountain deities. I mentioned that the Inca carved stone, and one of the things they are doing is designing places where they are making thanks for um, fertility and making offerings for future productivity. And they do the same thing for their animals, for llamas and alpacas and stuff.
1: Etched with Mist on Instagram has asked about, did they have any particular ideas surrounding death or the afterlife or perhaps any supernatural beliefs?
2: It's difficult to some extent because there were probably differences in different parts of the empire, but also in different levels of the elite structure. If we perhaps focus on the top of the tree of the Inca elite, of the Sapa Inca and his immediate family, they, when they died, and I guess the question is, would they have used the same word of death? Because they don't actually believe you stopped existing after you stopped breathing, and indeed, some of these estates are thought to have been owned by the what we would see as the dead Inca who were mummified. And unlike Egyptian mummies that were placed into the pyramids, Inca mummies were brought out to join in the celebrations. And so they were paraded and they were given food and drink, and they were seen as living entities. And indeed, the Inca mummies were thought to have been involved in the selection of the next Inca now. We might think that that was happening through the continuity of their family, who were probably vying for who would be the next Inca to bring those families back into sort of the orbits of power. But nonetheless, it was the Inca mummies' bodies that were brought out and paraded and brought to some of these festivities. And that was happening for a lot of other people as well. They were put up into what are called chulpas, which are burial towers, if you like, up in the sides of the mountains. And when you put a body in there, it would slowly dry out in the chilled winds of the Andes, dry, cold winds. Sidestep, but but the Inca also were um, made, and and in the Andes people also make dry potatoes, chunyu, which is um, basically freeze-dried potatoes that you could then reuse and and eat. Well, actually, their mummies were effectively going through the same process. They were being freeze-dried. And so to some extent, even commoners could bring their mummies out and um, bring them back. And we see in some of these chulpas, many of them have been robbed. We don't see as much human remains in them now, but there were sort of mixed human remains of people going in and out of these um, chulpas. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. When the Inca and the, the Andean people look up at the sky, they don't just see the stars, they see the black shapes and they name the black shapes. So things like the llama that they see in the sky is a black shape. And I think that, that, that's just a nice way of thinking about the fact that you can see the same thing, be in the same world, and experience it quite differently because you bring a different perspective. This
1: episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favourite shows to getting your favourite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. To move from talking about death to actually talking about life, what do we know about day-to-day life for the Incas? What did they do?
2: Okay. If we were to concentrate perhaps on the Cusco area, because that's where they originate, a lot of life was associated, of course, with agriculture and production. So basically the, the agricultural cycle defined what was happening. Um, the time of, first of all, irrigating quite often your fields even before planting. So that they are are a bit moist, and that would require so the construction of canals. Um, so a lot of work went into canals and terrace construction. Um, not always, you know, really very elaborate. Sometimes they're much more basic. Uh, um, so the ones that we see sort of pictures of are the very elaborate ones that are done for um, sort of Inca ownership of land. Um, but actually, even sort of more modest people would be constructing some terraces and bringing water down through canal systems growing uh, planting those crops growing them and you know understandably a bit like us harvests would be a point of festival and and engagement and that required sort of exchange of labor they'd also be um, pasturing their animals their um, llamas and alpacas producing some of these um, crafts good but then obligations such as construction work and there must have been a huge amount of labour going into building these, you know, the stone structures of, of, of elaborate palaces and things like that, and contributing to things like the military. In a sense, we might think of a lot of that as as almost like, you know, forced labour. Actually, in the Andes, and I've been involved in in, in in sort of building things and stuff, it's always made into a a festival. People are being given drink, and and you know sometimes even encouraged to sing and things while they're doing the work. There, interestingly enough, there are Spanish accounts of when they were first sort of constructing some of their churches of getting the people in Cusco um, to come and, and work. That they would have to dismantle Inca buildings take some of that stone, rework it and build a church with it. And yet they would dress up in some of their finery and be singing as they were doing it and making it a festival event as they did that construction. So, you know, we shouldn't see this labour as always being a sort of a drudgery. Sometimes it was actually, you know, you might think that was a clever technique, but it was made into a festival to get them involved in doing that work with energy
1: what about fun what happened for fun what did they do for fun
2: well i mean that's a, a difficult question archaeology and 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 even sort of some of the um, um accounts are not great Clearly, as I said, some of these activities were competitive. So while you were doing construction work, you would compete as two groups to do as much construction as possible. So you would make that into a festival. And so the Inca, you know, one of the comments that's made today is about the fact that, you know, in Peru and Bolivia, they have more saints festivals and activities than than many other parts of the world. And that is because they, they enjoy a good festival, getting together. And those festivals are not necessarily avoiding work. Sometimes they are to do work. Associated with them, but then there would be some good drinking and singing and dancing. Uh, they are always very good dancers at, at these events. They did have um, competitive moments of racing. They played games of various varieties, and indeed, there are some accounts of gambling type activities. So, yeah, no, they, I think they were they were capable of having good fun as well.
1: So, another angle to daily life would be. What was education like? Were there opportunities for education? This is a question from Bexter 07890 on Instagram.
2: Uh, yes. So education, I mean, a, a lot of education, of course, happens through the family, if you like. So you learn how to do agriculture or pottery making or whatever it might be from your family um, context. And that's family large. It's not necessarily just mum and dad. It would be within your community. And when I talked about the fact that part of the economic organisation of this was about ethnic groups providing labour to the Inca, that meant that you were trained in the skills of that ethnic group um, and you'd learn some of their agricultural and craft activities, and potentially then be moved. The Inca would then take people and move them to another area to do some of that production, but taking some of the skills and knowledge base that they had um, with them to do that. But the Inca also had education systems that they set up, perhaps particularly for elite groups, where they brought people into Cusco to train them, to learn um, about some of their belief systems, but also their administration systems um, and training them in some of those. So um, that was particularly things like the the children of the ethnic leaders, they would be taken to Cusco and encultured with Inca understanding so that when they went back, they would help sort of with that administration.
1: Do we know what language they spoke at all?
2: Okay, so there's quite a lot of discussion about that. So the Inca are particularly associated with Quechua. Uh, Quechua is a very major language, probably spoken by around 10 million people still today. Uh, Many of them also speak Spanish, but it was the major language of the Inca Empire. It was probably, in fact, spread long before the Inca, particularly under the Wari, the pre-existing empire, the one that had gone long before the Inca. They probably helped to spread Quechua, and probably to spread Aymara, um, which is now associated mainly with Bolivia, um, but was another major language that was more widespread in Peru in the past. There are colonial accounts of the Inca having spoken a secret language. It's not quite clear what that might have been. One possibility is that it included Pukina. Pukina was a language that was spoken in the late Titicaca area, and may have been associated with Tiwanaku, the, the other empire associated with the um, Wari at the same time as the Wari that came to an end around 1000 AD. And it's possible that, and it's certainly there are some Pequino words included in um, some of the prayers and things that were recorded by the Spanish, whether that was you know, a part of sort of esoteric ritual language, a bit like you know Latin was used by the church, or whether it was spoken more widely is not really very clear. But Quechua was the main language that united the empire, but I think they were they were pretty good linguists and they picked up Spanish pretty quickly when the Spanish <laughs> arrived.
1: We've also had quite a few questions about the not counting system. There's been one from MHFQ on Instagram and one from little keithy on Twitter to ask how much do we actually know about this system.
2: Okay, so these are the Inca knots or kipu, which basically means knot in, 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 in Quechua, which were, if you like, a very simple device. It's a string that had other strings hanging off it, and each of those strings could have knots tied into them. For quite a long time, it has been realised that that the majority of those have a decimal system, and that was translated about... Seventy years ago, by the Locks, it's fairly clear how the you know the ones, twos to tens work, and then actually where that knot is on the string. If it's sort of at one level, it's the one to ten. At the next level up, it's the um, tens to a hundreds. At the next level up, it's the um, um, hundreds to a thousands. And therefore, you could create this decimal system that could record really very large numbers, and that's particularly associated with things like what went into store and labour obligations and things like that. However, these knotted systems had more capacity than just numbering within them because they also had a colour range that was there. They had the direction of spin of the original preparing of the yarn, some of which was cotton and some of which was camelid fibre. They had the bin of the yarn and then the how they were added, the strings, the directionality of those strings and how they were added. And so there is a capacity for a lot more information. And we know from Spanish accounts that some of these had narrative like information. They were used for recording history in some form or other. And we have Spanish accounts of these being. Explain to them, but we don't know yet how they quite worked. So a guy called Gary Urton did a a particularly lot of work on on interpreting these. And the the analogy he makes is, of course, our computer systems. These are using zeros and ones and have a huge amount of data within them. You could layer a huge amount of data into these knotted uh, systems. And all we've really got is one aspect of that, the numerical system. It's very likely that they had other stuff. Whether we will ever be properly able to interpret it, I think part of the difficulty is it probably used metaphors. It used things like colours having metaphoric meanings and things like that. It may even not have been fully consistent throughout the Ink Empire. It may have varied in different areas, but they were certainly capable of carrying a lot of information.
1: What? other cultures did the Inca interact with?
2: First of all, the Inca, you know, start as one small um, lineage ethnic group, if you like, in Cusco. They begin this um, sort of alliance making uh, around Cusco and then expand out. And in doing so, they are incorporating a lot of other cultures, a lot of other ways of life. So, you know, they're coming from um, the highlands and they end up incorporating people that are on the Pacific coast, a very different environment, a very different culture. Uh, One of the ones I briefly mentioned is that they incorporated the Chimu. They were another... Empire themselves on on the coast, with very different sort of art and and structures and, 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 and belief systems and things, and they you know they 're incorporating people down to Argentina and up to the, the borders of Colombia, so they are a very heterogeneous Entity. And that's why actually Inca sort of systems of control varied so much because they were, you know, dealing with very different groups, some of them very um, well organized internally, and some of them much more um, um, egalitarian groups that they, they incorporated. So that meant that actually their ways of engaging had to vary depending on who they were going into, the environment, the structures of the people they met, and how aggressive the people they met were, the methods they chose in terms of incorporating them. So for all of those reasons, actually the Inca Empire, Suyu, was a very heterogeneous thing that had a lot of different cultures. They are coming across other groups on their borders that they don't quite incorporate. So I talked about the Machigenga and the Antes, the other sort of Amazonian groups. They are heading up towards Colombia, where they you know, were on the borders, if you like, of meeting a, a huge group, new range of, of, of people um, up near uh, San Agustin and, and going into uh, that sort of area. Um, but they weren't they weren't yet sort of incorporating them. They might have been beginning to just about engage with them. So yeah so they 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 were continually meeting new groups they the inca had, they did very large expansion over a sort of 50 to 60 year period they consolidated a bit more under huayna capac he he sort of expanded a bit so it's not quite clear how much they would have expanded next if you like um before the spanish arrived but they were perfectly capable of doing so
1: we've had quite a lot of questions about the spanish conquest so I just want to dive into a few of those quite quickly. One from Diogo Morgado on Twitter has asked, why did they fall so quickly to the Spanish? What reasoning was there behind this?
2: So actually there's a, there's a number of different factors um, that probably affected things. Two of the most important are... That the the Spanish arrived just as a civil war, if you like, a, a successional war was going on between Atahualpa and Huascar. Atahualpa had just won, and you know had had Huascar um, in chains, basically, or not in chains because they didn't have chains, but had been imprisoned as the Spanish arrived. So the Spanish were arriving when the when the empire was in a little bit of disarray, and they made very good use of that. Because they used other Andean people as their army. You know, the the, the the Spanish were a very small number, I forget the exact number, 138 or something. They're really a very small number of people. What they gain is people that are disaffected against Atahualpa's bit of the Empire and prepared to fight for the Spanish against them. They probably had no idea what they were doing. They just thought we don't particularly want this bit. We would like something different. So they didn't realize what they were supporting in some ways, although they certainly realized that the Spanish were foreign and different with horses and iron metal and things, swords and stuff that were very different to Inca um, warfare techniques. I mean, it's interesting that Andean warfare is partly based on cloth. Uh you 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 have cloth in terms of protection for the body, but you're using things like slings. And you know to some extent, you knock people on the head with starhead maces and things like that, but you aren't using sort of iron, so you don't have uh, metal protection or um, sharp um, um, swords and things. So there's a very big difference in terms of the technology. But actually that wouldn't have made such a huge difference because the Spanish are relatively small numbers. It meant that the individual Spanish were quite well protected, but it was largely the other Andean people that were prepared to join the Spanish that gave them the potential to really begin to win uh, against the Inca leadership. At the same time as that, there were other factors. So it is quite possible that Huayna Capac, the final great Inca leader, died of smallpox, a a European introduced disease. It's not certain that, but he certainly died and of a disease before the Spanish arrived. And it's possible that that was actually because the disease was traveling more quickly than the Spanish themselves were traveling into the heartland of South America. And certainly, disease must have had a significant effect the spread of disease on on the community so yeah a number of different factors that that probably uh, affected why the spanish were able to win so quickly and another one was once you removed atahualpa at the top of the pyramid of of, of leadership it had a significant effect because they was the, the you know although there were generals that were hugely capable they didn't quite know what to do, particularly, if you like, because of this changing leadership and being unclear about which side you should be on and supporting.
1: Do we have any contemporary records from the Incan perspective at all, or is it solely the Spanish?
2: In some ways, I would say we do. So although inherently writing is a European device, the you know the inca had oral history they spoke their history and they used their knotted strings to record certainly some historical content but what we get is either what the spanish wrote down of inca oral history or one or two indigenous chronic people that learned how to write and they wrote stuff down the indigenous writers are second generation People like Huaman Poma and to some extent Garcilaso de la Vega, they, they had not seen the conquest. They wrote a generation after the conquest, but gave a Andean perspective on what they were seeing. But there are others. Titucuse, the Inca leader that escaped to Vilcabamba down below Machu Picchu and was leading a sort of rebellion against the Spanish... Um, he wrote an account of of what he thought had happened. That's to some extent second generation, but not affected as much by Spanish perspectives, if you like. And actually, really importantly, Batanzos wrote a very interesting account, Juan de Batanzos, and he had married a person who had been a wife of Atahualpa, who then became a wife of Pizarro, and when Pizarro died, married Batanzos. And therefore, his account is actually quite strongly affected by her lineage, and her lineage was directly linked to uh, Pachacute, the, 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 the sort of main Inca sort of starting emperor that spread things out. So from these things, we do get a bit of Indigenous perspective. It's always filtered. It's always not exactly their perspective, but, but it gives us a bit of an idea of, of, of what they um, were trying to do and what they were thinking.
1: Now, I've got a big what-if question. We've had two people send in this question, so I may as well ask it. One from Rachel May on Facebook and one from the early modern girl on Instagram. How do you think the Inca would have developed if not invaded?
2: I mean, what-ifs are really interesting because they help us think about, I think, avoiding a sort of ethnocentrism of this is the way the world was always going to be. Um, And it's actually quite useful to think that the world could be different. Um, And one of the reasons why I like studying the Andes and the Inca is because it it allows us a different perspective on on the way the world is. You know, a very small one of that, when the Inca and the, the Andean people look up at the sky, they don't just see the stars, they see the black shapes and they name the black shapes. So things like the llama that they see in the sky is a black shape. And I think that that that's just a nice way of thinking about the fact that you can see the same thing, be in the same world, and experience it quite differently because you bring a different perspective. It's a very small one if you like, but so what would have happened? I don't know, but I think Atahualpa would have taken control. The very fact that he had done what a Ninca leader should do of basically showing you are strong and you can take over from anybody else that's contesting you. And he was young. He would have been a strong leader going into the next phase. I think he would have consolidated. He was building his, you know, building on, on what Puanacapac on had already begun in Ecuador, a new center up there. Um, And I think he would have expanded upwards towards Colombia. I I can't see anything other than that as being a likely um, scenario. And, you know, the Inca had a strong military mechanism. So as long as he didn't have people rebelling against him, he would have been able to lead a further expansion. I think it's quite likely. However, it's a big heterogeneous thing. And the Inca always had to deal with sort of little insurrections going on at different places. How long it could have been held together, I don't know. I think that's about how much people saw advantages to it. I think things like, as I mentioned, I think the art styles might have been changing, becoming a little bit more baroque, if you like, of of more animals and twiddly things incorporated into their art style. So I think, yeah, things would have changed and developed. I think they would have probably developed their engagement with the Amazonian area. But who knows? Perhaps, you know, the... From within that, perhaps the Chimu or some of the groups that they incorporated going up into Colombia might have begun to take the upper hand and, and things would have changed.
1: To follow on from a question about what-ifs, I want to ask you one about popular myths and misconceptions. What do you think is the biggest misconception about the Inca?
2: I suppose the the the, the one of the dangerous ones in some ways was the sort of... Um, the von Daniken perspective that it was all about aliens that came in and taught them how to do their stonework and things. And so that, you know, Andean people were not capable of doing this. The Spanish who arrived had no doubt that the Inca and Andean people were capable of doing all the things that they saw, you know, and they were full of admiration. César de Leon, one of the um, um, conquistadors, wrote a very long account full of admiration for how well structured and organized they were and how their road systems work and, you know, saying how much of this was better than what they had in Spain. So I don't doubt that the Andean people did all this. And I guess that was one of the misconceptions was that somehow there were aliens using lasers to cut the stonework, for instance. Having said that, you know, I think we have a better view of the world now we are accepting that you know there was strong capabilities in different parts of the world and it just wasn't always about europeans being uh, the origin of all capabilities but you know and, and so yeah as i say i think there's there's interesting things about the differences of these culture um, the mistake is to believe they weren't capable of the things that they were absolutely capable of
0: that was bill Siller. Professor of Archaeology and Technology and Society at UCL. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.